This is the SFF Audio Podcast. I'm Scott. I'm Jesse. So what's going on this week, Jesse? Uh, we're gonna have anything an good? We're gonna have an interview. I hope. Um, and uh, what about with you? What's what's going on? All right, boy, not a lot new this week. Busy week. Didn't get enough listening done, but I did finish uh, the little book, and I have a review almost in. We talked about that last week. Nice. The little book by Selden Edwards. And what's the verdict? Um. Yeah, uh, it was good. <laughs> okay. It was good. Like I said last week, you know, the uh, the science fiction or the genre parts of it are not all that important, you know. So it's more of a mainstream novel. Mm-hmm. So, uh, which I mean, there's nothing wrong with that, of course. Not that there's anything wrong with that. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I think there yeah, is something that, wrong that's with that. That's what I expected actually. going in. That's what I expected going in, and that's what it was. And it was really a um, the time travel was kind of a setup for philosophical musing. Um, lots of conversations between the main character and Sigmund Freud. Okay. Yep. So the yeah, author it was working out his. It was interesting. Uh, it was it was pretty well done. The author working out his own psychology, <laughs> or something like. You that. bet. You bet. Hmm. So if you're uh, interested in Vienna of night or 1897, um, yeah, I would recommend it. Okay. Sounds good. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I did put up a review, um, very late review, but. Uh, positive it's hard to it was hard to write about it actually um um yeah it probably shows up in the review um when it's something like you really enjoy and um you don't want to give away too many spoilers um it's much easier to write about a negative a negative uh piece but i put up a review of uh the accidental time machine which i i had finished i guess a month ago ago or maybe longer um and I had had the review in there for quite a while, but um, I kept working on it for a while. So, mm-hmm. but yeah, really, really good book. Oh, good. So, what uh, what is the accidental time machine? Oh, it's a Joe Haldeman novel. Um, yeah, but in, uh, in, one. in the book, what is it? Oh, is the, uh, oh, um, an MIT uh, graduate student is um, working on. Um, some sort of regular uh, atomic um, measuring device, I think. Um, it's set like 50 years in the future. Um, the, the very first part is set 50 years mm-hmm. in the future. So, and um, he's he's working on something that would probably be uh, very expensive now, um, but it's relatively uh, inexpensive then. Um, and he. Uh, he's making something that he's probably made before, um, but if for some reason it doesn't work properly. And um, this atomic uh, weight tester, you know, calibrator basically, um, uh, has a strange property. Um, uh, when he turns it on, it, it disappears. Um, hmm. And it disappears for about 12 seconds. And he's going, huh? What's what the hell right so he's like mm-hmm. uh, have I been drinking too much coffee uh, what's going on here 
Um, and uh, through a series of short experiments, he figures out that it's traveling into the future. Uh-huh. Um, and he figures out a way to uh, take himself along with it. Uh, and that's the premise. But it only goes forward. It does not go backwards in, into the past. Hmm. Well, I see. That sounds good. Yeah, it's really good. And it sounds it's interesting. I remember, uh, well, it's not quite the same thing, but uh, Joe or James P. Hogan wrote Thrice Upon a Time. That was one of the books I read as I was coming up, and uh, it was about a uh, messaging that you could go through time with messages. Mm-hmm. You know, you couldn't send people back in time, but you could send messages. And then, of course, when the, when the poop hits the fan... You know, you want to send messages back to keep that poop from hitting the fan. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, the, the, there's one actually pretty good science fiction movie um, that's kind of like that. Um, Jim Caviezel's in it. You know the one I mean? Oh, yeah. And, um, yeah, Frequency. Frequency, that's right. Yeah, Dennis Quaid. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm kind of surprised uh, that that was a good movie, but uh, mm-hmm. I quite liked it. Well, good. It sort of used, um, uh, it's 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 one you know gimme uh, well enough that it didn't make you upset with anything else. Uh huh. Yeah. Hey, you know what I saw this week? What's that? Uh, the Clone Wars. Mm-hmm. Star Wars: The Clone Wars, that animated uh, movie. Yeah, I saw it uh, a couple weeks ago. Yeah. Well, I didn't hate it. You know, but part of it is. I, I know that part of it is because I want to like it so bad. <laughs> oh. you know, I, I really like the Star Wars universe. And uh, Episode 1 was a, a huge disappointment. Mm-hmm. And then I felt like 2 was better and 3 was slightly better. But you know what's interesting is the audiobooks of all three of those mm-hmm. really make the movies so much better. Um, especially Episode 3. The unabridged audiobook of Episode Three, because the the novelist who wrote that um, really approached that novel in a different way and, <laughs> than, uh, than so, the director. So what you, you have, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Especially with dialogue, you know, dialogue was a, was a big problem. Yeah, so if you uh, you know you listen to these audiobooks and you've got George Lucas's images in your head and the uh, a good writer's words in in your mind too, and uh, it's really. Well, yeah, you have to so forgive. So I, I highly recommend that. You have to forgive George Lucas, though, because I mean he is translating from a language that's, lo- you know, long, long ago in a galaxy far, far away, and you know he's just doing his sim- sim- best to make that simple translation. And sure, it right. comes out sounding cheesy, but, you know. <laughs> you bet. You bet. So, but anyway, yeah, we watched it. Uh, you know, my whole family went over to another family's house, and we put it on their big old TV and. Watched it and had a great time. Good. And what more can you ask from a animated Star Wars movie? Um, yeah, I, I don't, I don't think there was any nudity in it. I didn't like the talking, <laughs> I didn't like the talking Jabba the Hutt um, uh-huh. uh, uncle. I thought that was lame. Mm-hmm. Um, the battle sequence took too long. Um, other than that, it was okay. It was okay. Yeah, it, it was okay. It wasn't horrific. Yeah, and there's I didn't hate it. There's probably, show. you know, I had low expectations as well. Yeah. And uh, that might have helped us help too. 
but I liked it. I didn't I didn't dislike it. Let me say that it's not my favorite movie ever, and yeah, it has flaws, but I didn't uh, I didn't hate it. I think part of the problem is is they're working with the same material that they had. Uh, I guess with episode three or episode two or whatever with the Clone Wars, yeah. it's like yeah, you have seven hundred guys on either side that look exactly the same. Where there's mm -hmm. the, man, the Roger Roger robots and the and the, uh -huh. uh, uh, Kiwi um, clones or whatever. That's pretty simple. Yeah, yeah. No Jar Jar that I remember. Yeah, you, you lucked out in the lack of Jar. <laughs> hey, you know what else is cool? If we're talking about movies, um, have you watched the Star Trek trailer? Yeah, yeah. You sent sent me a link to it. Oh yeah. What did you think? I mean, um, yeah. Yeah. Hard to I, say. yeah. I think you said something. Um, mildly positive, and I said something mildly, mildly negative. I said they didn't <laughs> screw it up too badly, or something like that. Yeah, I go back and oh, forth on this. Uh, you know, what was what? Oh, I just heard a going offline noise. Oh, um, no, I go back and forth on that movie. Um, you know, I'm I'm much more a Star Trek fan than I am a Star Wars fan. Um, uh, well, yeah, so dude, it's too far out. When it's coming yeah, out, it's too far out. Time? But I'm just talking. I'm just talking about the concept of the thing. I don't. You know, I, 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 I get. I get hot and cold. I. I, I think prequels. I, I don't know why prequels are so. You know why? Why do they want to do prequels? Why don't they? They move on. Well, it's very clear um, why they do prequels. It's because <laughs> the character, the actors, are too old for sequels, and um, that's not going to well, work. They got. They got a whole new set of actors. That's right. So the the they can't do. <laughs> I guess they could have done. No, the, the problem with the problem with the prequel is nothing truly significant can possibly happen. Because oh, if they yeah, do that, you violate then, you can violate the rules of the previous movies. Yeah, so they could do that. I, I, I do that, see that at least one of them in uh, the trailer. Uh, <clears throat> Captain Kirk's driving a car in the mm -hmm. very first sequence, right? Or motorcycle yeah. or something. I can't remember. Um, car. Yeah. Okay. Um, don't we have this problem of uh, he goes back in time in episode four, uh, and he says, "What's that?" Is yeah, it like yeah. senile in episode <laughs> episode four that he doesn't That's remember right. that he drove cars. He's forgotten. He's forgotten. Yeah, one of the things that uh, had me, you know, shaking my head is when I read that there were going to be scenes with, uh, and it was this is a quote from the article: Kirk and Spock as children. And I was thinking, oh no, you know, they're gonna have these two like be buddies, you know, in when they were kids or something. And I was like, oh boy, but uh, apparently that's not the case. It's like yeah. little From, Archie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But apparently that's not the case. It looks like uh, they follow Spock a little bit when he was young, and follow Kirk when he was young. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I, I don't know. I don't know why they. You know, obviously it's money. You know, I mean, they they think that this is going to be more popular, but they have all these these other actors um, from the various series. You know, especially you know, Deep Space Nine and Voyager and uh, Next Generation that uh, they could do something with. Well, I I believe that it also has to do with what the the guy who took it on wanted to do, right? J.J. Abrams wanted didn't want to do a Voyager <laughs> movie, and um, uh -huh. I, I don't blame him. I think uh, 
Voyager had the weakest characters. I, I think Enterprise yeah. was not strong in characters. Uh, Deep Space Nine was pretty strong in characters, but also um, was not very popular compared to um, uh, some of the other stuff. And it's been too long. They mm-hmm. had their chance. Well, all true. Can't argue about that. So, Mr. Ron, you're a podcaster. But yes, I am. I have a feeling that a lot of people have not heard of you, even though you've been around for a long time. How long have you been podcasting? Uh, since March of 2005. I guess you might call me a podcast pioneer of sorts. Mm -hmm. Definitely. I I think you're probably the first guy doing what you're doing. Um, And what are you doing exactly? (laughs) I may be the only guy doing exactly what I'm doing. Uh, Essentially, what I do is I read hopefully humorous uh, short stories and pieces from uh, the public domain, which primarily means it's before 1923. Uh, my emphasis is on American writers or writers who were popular in America uh, mm-hmm. during that period. Um, by and large, most of it was from what I call the golden age of uh, American newspaper humor, which is from about the 1850s through the 1890s. But some of it goes as far as the 1920s. Right. Um, and I, I think I first stumbled across you. Um, I think I think I, I found you before you found me. Is that true? Okay, it's possible. Doesn't sound familiar. <laughs> um, it is quite possible, though. Uh, I guess the other side is true too. I, I certainly discovered I SFF audio, uh, at least to look at, um, before we ever communicated. Mm-hmm. Well. Um, I've got the earliest contact I've got between us um, on the website is uh, um, the man who could work miracles, which was um, one of right, your the H.G. Wells story, right? Uh, yes. For October two thousand five. Okay. And that's um, that was done for our um, H.G. Wells month. Right. That's yeah. I remember now. Yes. And, and uh, I do believe that was the first. Um, mp3 version of that available on the internet i'm sure it was uh, i've always been a fan of that story uh, uh you know of course they made a wonderful movie out of it that wells actually wrote the script for i haven't seen the movie but uh, i like the i like the story oh yeah well you know wells actually wrote uh two movies it was things to come mm-hmm. and uh the man who could work miracles uh things to come was a big huge hit uh at the box office Miracles wasn't, but uh, it was a great movie anyway. Okay. <laughs> okay, so anyway, going back to what I do, uh, essentially most of the authors, uh, most people have never heard of, but at the time they were writing, they were household names in America. Uh, for example, M. Quad, whose real name was C.P. Lewis, um, everybody in the U.S. knew M. Quant. Um, he was uh, writing uh, his weekly humor column, which was syndicated uh, from about 1870 or so to um, 
he his death in 1924. Yeah, and then it fizzled away. Yeah. Um, but uh, from time to time, uh, some of the humorous stories I find are related to science fiction, fantasy, or even crime fiction. Uh, I remember a while back I did a whole week of Sherlock Holmes spoofs. Yeah, I'd love to. I'd love to have a post about that. So please, um, please remind remind me and. Um, All right, I'll try to pop up a post of that within the week. That that'd be great. Yeah, I'm a big fan of uh, Sherlock Holmes and Sherlock Holmes uh, spoofs, um, or at least um, imitation. There was a, uh, I think it was August Derleth had um, uh, his own imitation of Sherlock Holmes called um, Solar Ponds. Have you cool. heard those? No, no, I haven't, but I've heard of August Derleth. Well, it was um, during, uh, it was at the time when uh, Sherlock Holmes was still in. Uh, under copyright, and uh, I ah. believe um, I believe that when it was first started, that that uh, uh, Conan Doyle was still alive, and oh, so yeah, he he would uh, he was saying no, you can't do that, you can't write write. Uh, well, a lot of people did it. Uh, o. Henry, I'm just looking here. Uh, o. Henry did the Adventures of Shamrock Jones, right? Or Shamrock Jones. Uh, we had. Uh, um, somebody wrote uh, the astounding deductions of picklock holes, uh, <laughs> thinlock bones, warlock bones. Uh, so they got away with this stuff. That's pretty funny. Yeah, and he. I mean, it's it's it becomes pretty easy to make fun of um, if yeah. you've got a series, and uh, I think I think that 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 should be pretty fun in itself. Um, the way I would describe um, describe what you're sort of doing in to a Canadian, I would probably say um, you're writing, you're, you're digging up people like what w- would be our Stephen Leacock. You know who Stephen Leacock is? I think you've probably done the Stephen Leacock story. Uh, I actually have uh, yeah. an entire uh, page full of leaks, links, excuse me, uh, to. Tw- 29 Stephen Leacock stories I've done. And in fact, I'm really proud of this. The um, official uh, Stephen Leacock um, um, Medal of Humor uh, webpage just put a whole front page article about Mr. Ron's basement on their website. So cool. I'm very thrilled about that. Yeah, hey, St- Stephen Leacock's still a pretty big deal in Canada. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. And very I think stuff. it's because his writing really holds up. Um, would uh, would you say um, Mark Twain is the American Stephen Leacock? That's he, one way to put it. <laughs> I mean, obviously most yes. people would put it the other way around, but uh, yeah, Leacock was actually a big Mark Twain fan. He wrote a book about right. Twain, and even though he was popular before, his popularity took off. Really took off right after Twain died uh, in America, which is kind of fascinating. Um, kind of filled his shoes. Uh, mm-hmm. Of course, um, you know, Leacock's supreme effort was the Sunshine Sketches of a uh, Small Town, mm-hmm. um, a novel about the uh, fictional or semi-fictional town of Mariposa, which is so Canadian and so much fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, it's I would love to do it, uh, but it would take me 
maybe a year to read it. Uh, maybe when I'm finished with uh, Connecticut Yankee, that'll be the next novel I serialize. You know, that'd be great. I'd, I'd be happy to have that serialized next. Once a week, recording uh, one chapter, half a chapter at a time. Is that, is that your, your schedule? Right. Sunshine, if I did Sunshine Sketches, it may take me two or three weeks to do a chapter. It's not many chapters, and they're very long. Okay. But uh, uh, I'll keep one in mind. Uh, the very, very first Mr. Ron's Basement episode was a Leacock story. Uh, in fact, it was called The Irreducible Detective. And hey. while it didn't really mention Sherlock Holmes or use a funny Holmes name, it was a Sherlock Holmes spoof, for sure. Well, it could have been a Poe spoof with that title. Um, you know, um, Poe was a real inventor of the... the oh, sure. The locked room mystery with a detective, uh, private detective, that uh, they could very well fit together like that. Um, yes. Poe po also wrote for newspapers. Is that... Is yes. That your, so, yeah, uh, basically... Um, Newspaper humor kind of began in the 1830s um, uh, with the invention of the um, uh, motorized uh, or steam-driven uh, newspaper press, which enabled uh, people to come out with penny newspapers. And a man in um, Maine, name of uh, Seba Smith, created the first uh, humorous uh, character. Uh, that would appear week after week, a series of phony letters from this character named uh, Major Jack Downing <laughs> appeared uh, in, in the uh, newspaper, and um, circulation caught on like crazy. And after that, more and more newspapers found that they could pick up readers uh, by uh, putting humor in. Yeah, and I, I think I think the... The literacy of you know newspapers, the um, the fiction of newspapers has got a long tradition. Even before that, um, uh, Benjamin Franklin was a big uh, <laughs> uh, writing letters to his own newspaper sort of oh, guy. Oh yeah, um, yeah. I, I, in fact, uh, for when Ben Franklin's five hundredth birth was it five no three hundredth birthday came around, um, I. Uh, did a week of Franklin stories. Uh, mm -hmm. Some of them were quite uh, rude. Yes. Uh, he, he did one story, which I read with uh, as judiciously as possible, a story that he did about farting. Uh, <laughs> well, there's so, a humor for you. Yep. <laughs> From uh, the one of the founding farting fathers. Yes, but by and large, uh, humor in newspapers was incidental. Essentially, before the steam press, newspapers were sold by annual subscription, and they were $20, $30 a year, which back in the late 1700s and early 1800s was an enormous amount. That'd be like thousands of dollars mm -hmm. in today's money uh, to subscribe to newspapers. So... They weren't really aiming for the popular audience, uh, but the steam press and the penny newspaper, all of a sudden, they had to come up with circulation building uh, stunts <laughs> because they wanted people out in the street to buy a newspaper, not just subscribe to it at home. Also, in most American homes, at least, um, right up 
through the early 20th century, most newspaper magazine readers in homes were women. Uh, because most men were illiterate. <laughs> and a man would come home in the evening from work and his wife would read him pieces from the newspaper. Uh, see what's going on. Um, the original audiobook. Yes. And, uh, in fact, one of the most popular uh, humorous writers of the 19th century was uh, Fanny Fern, mm-hmm. who uh, from the 1850s up to the her death in 1872 um, was immensely popular. She was the highest paid columnist in America. Uh, her work was syndicated all over, and uh, she was a bit controversial. A lot of people uh, wouldn't allow Fanny Fern's stories in a respectable home, uh, <laughs> which is kind of fascinating. Um but uh, she was very much involved with early women's rights movement and was a founder of a group called uh, Sorosis in New York City, which was for uh, women uh, journalists. Uh, they formed the uh, organization when uh, Charles Dickens came to New York and he wanted to speak to a journalist club and they wouldn't allow women, even working women journalists, to come to this meeting. And meet Charles Dickens, so that's when they formed their own organization, and they asked Fanny Fern to to head it. And up till then, she hadn't really been involved with any organizations, but she threw herself into it. But her stories are, um, they run the gamut. A lot of them are just sentimental uh, stuff that's so sickly sweet, you can't really look at it without an insulin shot. But... Uh, a lot of her stuff, especially regarding husbands and wives and children and odd things when you travel and stuff like that, uh, were very funny. And I try to read as many Fanny Fern stories as I can uh, put in. I've got an index of them up on the webpage as well. Well, let's give let's give your uh, uh, website. It's a little bit. Um, it's probably easier just to type in Mr. Ron into um, into Google. Will that bring up a Mr. Ron oh sure. Website. Yeah, it helps if you spell out the word Mister, but if you type M R Ron, you'll you'll get there. Okay. Um, but uh, yeah, there's there are, you know, Mister Ron's basement is all over the place. Of course, you can subscribe to it in iTunes. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's free. Um, and now the way the iTunes works, their menu will show the most recent three hundred. But if you hit the subscribe <laughs> button. If you hit the subscribe button, um, all episodes become available to you. And uh, unless you have a whole heck of a lot of hard drive space, you may not want to click on the get all episodes button. And bandwidth, too. Um, if, if you're living in uh, Iqaluit and you, uh, you hit the subscribe to all, I think your bandwidth suddenly go to zero. Right. At the moment, I have 1,218 episodes. Uh, I update it every single day, seven days a week. Have you missed any days? Uh, yeah, but I make up for them, usually. <laughs> Although there was a period earlier this year where my server was having some technical difficulties. They were switching um, uh, their server. Uh, and uh, I went for about a month or so without updating. And it was extremely frustrating to me because... 
reading these things every night is kind of like a shot in the arm for me. Mm-hmm. It, it's 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 I've gotten addicted to reading stories. Well, you've, you've actually got a pretty good voice for it too, and I, oh, I think there, there's been some evolution in uh, in your um, your delivery. Oh, thank you very much. My son says I have a great face for radio. <laughs> um, That's uh, probably the the opposite of what you could say for television, right? Yeah, um, television's fun, um, but um, we only have one video. On the entire Mr. Ron's. Oh, you got a video not, podcast. There is one, well, no, there's one video up there. I didn't number it, but if you hunt around on the webpage, uh, you can find it. Uh, my friend, um, cartoonist Bud Grace, who does uh, the Piranha Club Daily Strip, uh, did a little uh, birthday greeting uh, video for Mr. Ron's basement a couple years ago, and it's still up there, and it's fun to look at. Okay. And it has the secret of Mr. Ron's mustache in it. Uh-huh. Ah, yes. <laughs> you don't have a lot of graphics on your website, but you do have the, the Mr. Ron character, and he does look very um, dapper in his uh, in his. Yeah, that's based, that's based on a drawing of me uh, that was done by Jack Davis, uh, one of the greatest cartoonists of history. Uh, he goes back to the old EC Comics days. Uh, he's done probably more TV Guide covers than anybody else, and uh, Time Magazine covers and so on, um, and uh, he's kind of a friend of mine. Um, long time ago, back when the internet was just sort of catching on, uh, I guess '96 or so, um, I created the first website for the National Cartoonist Society, and uh, in gratitude, they actually made me a full-fledged member. Uh, which is weird. Uh, sometimes I go to meetings and uh, everyone sits around and saying, uh, how do we keep non-cartoonists away from our meetings? And I just sort of <laughs> sit there and flush. Uh, like there's a lot of people uh, clamoring at the door trying to get in, is that? Uh, oh, well, yeah, it's a, a very exclusive organization. It's for professional cartoonists and illustrators. Uh, it was founded by uh, Rube Goldberg back in the 1940s. In fact, there's a legend that Rube Goldberg, uh, back around uh, 1909 or so, tried to start a national cartoonist organization, and he went to a meeting with Mark Twain. <laughs> uh, there's no proof of this, but it's one of those legends that people who knew Rube uh, claim that uh, he told them. So, who knows? Interesting. Um, you're but, a f- uh, yeah. font of information about... Uh that you know just what's going on in the news a uh, hundred years ago it's um it's 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 uh addictive my one of my uncles is um addicted to collecting newspapers from ancient times and he's um he's always telling me uh you know news what's going on in in the newspaper back you know 150 years ago and one of one of the things he he thinks that um you can you can find is that you can find a lot of sort of information that we knew but don't know anymore. So oh he, sure, he's um he he's more into the nonfiction end of newspapers. But um, one of the things he has is an account of um, a balloon rescue um, in Paris during the uh, the um, French Revolution when the city oh. was under um, uh, under uh, a revolution. Uh, some 
I believe it was some uh, Scarlet Pimpernel-esque characters, um, you know, uh, got into a balloon and took off out of the city so that they could avoid uh, the r raging crowds. Um, and this is reported in the, you know, the London uh, Daily News or whatever it was. Ah. Oh. It's, uh, I, I'm not, I'm not a, uh, I don't have a copy of the, the paper in front of me, and I was told a couple of years ago, but um, I keep telling him he should, you know, put these up on the internet, scan them up, put that article up. That's a perfect blog entry. I'm just so fascinated by, by, um, you know, real, real life things that are tied in, and that's what the newspaper is. It's, you know, history every day. Oh, for sure. Uh, a lot of the stories that I do... Um, are related to the news of the day. Uh, right. A lot of times they spoof those things. When necessary, I will try to explain it. Uh, although sometimes, uh, for example, the Stanley Huntley's uh, uh, Swoop and Dyke stories frequently made fun of uh, the goings-on in the Guiteau trial. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, Charles Guiteau was, of course, the man who assassinated uh, uh, President Garfield. <laughs> and... Um, they certainly got into that, and I don't really go into too much detail when I read stories that mention that because it's kind of incidental to know that. Uh, although sometimes there are things where I have to actually back up and really explain. You need uh, the context. You, need, you absolutely context. need the context. Yeah. Um, so, uh, uh, and, for example, the most recent story um, got posted, A Journey to the Sun. Um, without the without the context of the um, you know the what it's spoofing, I don't think anybody's going to understand why it's funny. Right. Uh, although enough people read Jules Verne that Still, yeah. uh, you know, and of course um, a lot of people have seen Around the World in Eighty Days the movie, mm -hmm. and so they would be familiar with the name Phineas Fogg, for instance. Right. And they would get the joke about uh, spoofing his name. Mm -hmm. But uh, it's also not just spoofing, you know, character names and stuff like that. It's also, it's it's like um, when that book came out at the time. This this is being the newspaper not not too long after. Is that correct? Um. Well, actually. This what um around the world in eighty days was from eighteen seventy two and the spoof was from eighteen eighty. Um, but the eighteen seventy two is the English edition. That's a good question. I don't know. Um, it may have been much later. Uh, uh, now the other one I did or something. If if not, uh, I mean hmm. it, it's like um, you know we we get robot chicken first. You know Star Wars. Um, <laughs> we're still we're. We're we're getting spoofs of what we know. Um, for them, they're getting spoofs of what they know. Yeah. Right? But, uh, um, have you got a lot of H.G. Wells spoofs, or is it more of uh, uh, Jules um, Verne and Mark Twain? And well, uh, Wells didn't write a whole heck of a lot of humor. That's no. the problem. I would love to read more Wells, but. Uh, he no, I'm of, actually thinking spoofs of his stuff. Rather oh, than, spoofs of his stuff? Yeah. I haven't seen much of that. Like The Visible Man or something like that. That would be interesting. I may look at, look into it and see what I can find. Um, and you're, you're basically working with American newspapers, is that correct? Basically. Um, of course, you know, Leacock is the big, 
you know, exception. Sure. And uh, occasionally um, there are other people as well. But um, primarily, for instance, if somebody foreign was popular in America, then I got no problem. Uh, right. And occasionally it's the other way around. Uh, W.L. Alden wrote for the New York Times for years, uh, but he wrote a lot of his great humor while he was in England. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'll still write that, you know, include that stuff. Um, you know, going back to the idea that we were just talking about, about uh, pulling up things out of context. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was just looking on the page here, and way back in 1868, I found a story uh, by Brick Pomeroy <laughs> that used the word wombelcrop. Actually, in fact, no, it wasn't by him. Now that I think about it. Um, let me see here. No, it was yeah, it was Wombelcroft. Um, and I actually asked readers on the webpage and in this in the episode, uh, anybody know what a Wombelcroft is? And um, I finally found out it's a word that means a rumbling stomach. <laughs> and uh, apparently, it was very common. And uh, you know, sometimes you just That's have passed to out guess. of the dictionary. I think, yeah. Yeah, after somebody told me about it, I looked it up in an unabridged dictionary, and I found it and had the word archaic next to it. Um, so occasionally you do run into things that you just don't know. Um, but uh, there's just so much stuff. I think that the lives of the American humorists kind of intertwined in a lot of ways because a lot of them did work for newspapers uh, Mark Twain, many years, tried to uh, pretend he never wrote for newspapers. In fact, when he did write for newspapers, he often used uh, other pen names because he was a little embarrassed by it. And uh, it's um, it's like writing science fiction today. People, oh no, I don't write science fiction. I I write I write my books. <laughs> indeed, yeah, it's very similar. Um, and uh, that's just, you know, the way things were. It was considered very low class to be a newspaper humorist, uh, even though people who wrote it were immensely popular. Right. Uh, but back then, there was a huge difference between uh, being popular and being proper. Uh, one of the things that people did not like about Fanny Fern was that she wrote in vernacular. She did not bother trying to be proper. She wrote like she conversed. Right. And that was pretty radical in the 1850s. Um, nowadays... The original Ebonics or something like that. Well, not even... Well, to a point, but just like the way everybody talked. There was a huge difference between formal speech and writing and informal speech and writing. Uh, when you read Shakespeare... I know a lot of people think, well, that's how people talk. <laughs> I don't think so. And, and, no, people did not talk like Shakespeare in Shakespeare's day. People who were highly educated talked to each other that way, would perhaps try. in formal situations. Yeah. yeah, they would try. Um, but uh, there, as I say, there are, are many, many stories about uh, these people. Um and they do intertwine a lot. Uh, um, 
one, one there's for instance between Fanny Fern and Philander Dostics. Neither of those, of course, were their real names. Fanny Fern was Sarah Willis Peyton Parton, and Philander Dostics was uh, Mortimer Thompson. Um, their stories very much intertwined. They were both very popular. They lived in New York, actually in Brooklyn, um, during the 1850s and 60s. And uh, Thompson uh, Dostics married uh, Fern's daughter. And uh, they had a child. She died a few months later. And um, it was kind of sad, the story of Dostics. He was top of the world, very funny guy. He hung out with a group of bohemians in New York City uh, uh, at a place called Faf's Beer Cellar. Uh, and that group included people like Walt Whitman and other famous writers of the day. And they would go and do wild and crazy things. Uh, there's a web page devoted to Faf's uh, beer cellar. It's P-F-A-F-F apostrophe S. And if you Google that, you can find out some fascinating stories about uh, these uh, early beatniks from the 1850s. And, it's like um, the Algonquin Roundtable uh, from Very earlier. much. Only they were a little wilder. When the Prince of uh, England came to New York for a visit... Um, Thompson and a few other members of the set uh, went and essentially kidnapped him and took him out for a night of wild carousing in the city. And um, the, all the uh, prince's uh, people were really upset because they didn't know where he was. Uh, so, you know, they, they were involved in pretty wild stuff. But um, uh, Thompson, even though he was very famous for his humorous writing, uh, today, he's more well-known for uh, going down uh, south to the largest slave auction in history, pretending to be a slave buyer. And on the train back to New York, he wrote an article uh, about uh, the um, horrible situation uh, of slaves at auction. He called it the crying time. And it, it the newspaper it appeared in New York had to create a second edition it was very popular an anti-slavery group printed it up uh as a flyer and distributed it all over america and it probably helped elect abe lincoln uh create that much anti-slavery feeling up till then you know the the common word was oh they're happy we take care of them Mm. and he just kind of shattered those illusions the story itself isn't very funny but he still wrote it using his philander dough sticks uh Uh, pen name, which up till then was associated with incredibly funny stories. But after that, um, he kind of had double tragedies. He was married to two beautiful young girls who, one died in childbirth and the other, Fanny Fern's daughter, um, died a few months later when his first son uh, was was visiting and he he gave her scarlet fever. And so he lost both of his wives, you know, pretty much in a row. He went to cover the Civil War as a reporter, and he pretended to be a uh, chaplain. And uh, the New York 26th Regiment, I was reading about this in some book. Some, uh, somebody wrote the reminiscences of the Civil War in 1906, and they had a little, chap- little piece in it about uh, uh, when they were handing out drinks to uh, the workers, the, to the soldiers who were building a hospital, uh, they insisted that their friend, the, the, the uh, chaplain Dostics, uh, get his drink. But um, during the war, he actually took a bullet 
for a popular officer that everyone loved and um and shattered ribs and they never could heal right and he became a morphine addict which was not that uncommon back then you could buy the stuff over the counter sure. if you went to a doctor and said you had a headache he'd just say go buy some morphine yeah and all the and, all the drinks were uh doped with it all, uh, you know, like it, a lot of products uh you could buy oh yeah yeah that'd be the yeah. major ingredient yeah, it could have been. Um, Beetroot and morphine. <laughs> yes, but uh, he got addicted to morphine. He tried after the Civil War to continue writing humor, and I've even read some examples of his post-Civil War humor, and it's pitiful. It gets worse and worse, and um, he finally fell into total poverty. He was forgotten, and when he died in 1875... Um, Hardly anybody noticed. There were a few little notices in some newspapers, and it was more like, yeah, the guy who used to be Dostics is gone. Uh, but when he first started writing, he actually had produced a hoax saying that he was dead, and newspapers plastered it from coast to coast in big articles. <laughs> oh, that's quite a... He's wrote, he's wrote his, um, his, his fake... Um, his, his own fake... Uh, Epitaph, and it ends up being uh, popular when he's still alive, but when he's actually dead, nobody cares. Yeah, um, what's interesting is his daughter, uh, when his second wife died a few months after giving birth, uh, his Fanny Fern and her husband James Parton, uh, the, uh, who back then was a famous biographer, uh, adopted the little girl. And, um, in fact, uh, I looked at... Um, I have a uh, complete New Yorker on DVD, and I found an article that uh, uh, his daughter wrote in 1930s about growing up uh, with Fanny Fern, and it's fascinating. But um, she was raised by James Parton. When Fanny Fern died in 1872, he moved her and Fanny's other daughter, uh, the older daughter, to uh, Newburyport, Massachusetts. And... Uh, Years later, he married Fanny's older daughter, and uh, in they found out a couple of days later that in Massachusetts, it was illegal to marry your stepdaughter, even if you weren't related uh, by blood. So they went and got married in, um, in New York again, and then uh, Parton had enough influence in Massachusetts that he convinced the legislature to pass a law making it legal. <laughs> to marry an adopted relative who wasn't blood-related, but the governor vetoed it because he said he didn't want to tamper with marriage laws. <laughs> uh, and, you know, sometimes things stay the same in the newspaper headlines from, you know, 150 years ago to today, you know. It's true. Uh, so it's kind of fascinating. But uh, she eventually, her name was uh, Ethel... Um, uh, Thompson, and she eventually changed her name to Ethel Parton, and when she be, when she turned 21, and in the 1930s and 40s, she became a very famous children's book author, uh, writing these wonderful books about Newbury, growing up in Newburyport, Massachusetts, in the uh, 1800s, and they were took place in different decades, and in a lot of ways, they're probably predecessors to the popular American Girl series which uh, kids gobble up like candy these days. Uh, so there's kind of just all this complicated tie-in. Um, Parton herself uh, did not, she didn't like 
what had become of her real father. Uh, she had written about it, and uh, she felt that uh, he had no excuse to become a morphine addict and all that, uh, because that's just the climate of things. Sure. But uh, anyway, like I say, the stories all get intertwined with each other. Um, I firmly believe that uh, Mortimer Thompson, Dostix, was uh, highly influential on Stanley Huntley. Um, because they both lived and worked in Brooklyn at the same time, although Huntley's career as a humorist didn't take off until the 1880s. I gotta, I so, gotta ask you yeah. about. Um, so it's it's kind of interesting because I think newspapers are um, kind of like podcasts <coughs> in that they're they're basically a very ephemeral. They're not designed yes. to stick around for a long time, and yet. What's what you're what you've done is you've you know you've done what they didn't really intend, which is to go back and look at a whole career rather than just a single column. You're 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 interested in the 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 progression and the the whole the whole story that's being told over the, over all these um, these years. Um, yeah. What, what do you think the relationship between uh, you know popular uh, the popular people's consumption of entertainment and news and the relationship between that and podcasting it's um it's it, i think that it's kind of striking you're talking about this this steam powered uh printer um, yeah. now now we've got uh you know word wordpress and podpress and uh, i guess um yeah the, the paper newspaper may eventually evolve out or become a uh, very uh, small item. That, well, I'm, that, I'm not thinking so much about the, the, Yeah, uh, definitely newspapers are dying in, in the traditional sense. They're firing, uh, firing all their, um, <laughs> their news gatherers and exploitating yeah. and that sort of thing. I'm, I'm more actually thinking about, um, about what, what you think about podcasting in relationship to the, you know, the heyday of newspapers. Yeah, well, podcasting is, uh, right now, it's still pretty early in the game. Um, and it's sort of like uh, they said back in the 19, late 1920s and early 1930s, uh, if you could stand in front of a microphone without being scared to death, you had a career in radio ahead of you. Yeah. Um, and there are huge amounts of podcasts out there, and they are ephemeral in most cases old ones vanish and uh, gone forever yeah i mean there there is the work by places like archive.org uh which tries to get a snapshot of everything but when not, it comes to that audio. yeah not the audio uh, it, although they do they do store some audio uh although um uh uh roger strickland who runs slapcast which is mm -hmm. my server uh, did look into the possibility of getting archive.org to um, back up my podcast, but uh, they really weren't too thrilled about it because of the huge amount of it. Well, um, um, archive.org does accept public domain stuff. If you're willing to put your, your stuff in well, the public domain, you can put your stuff there. Yeah, now that gets tricky. I haven't really considered whether or not... Um, I know I'm reading public domain stories and uh it's copyrighted the question here is 
record it though. If, yeah, if is you want. is my performance copyrighted? Yes, and is. I haven't really decided. As long um, as you say it is. <laughs> well, if you don't US, want it to be, um, I think I may go with a Creative Commons type approach. That, uh, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, my performances are out there. Anybody can duplicate them. If somebody was to press them and sell them on eBay, like people do with LibriVox recordings, mm -hmm. um, I might get offended if I didn't get a cut. Um, if they're not making very much. I wouldn't worry too much about it. Well, actually, there are people who apparently just crank out uh, pressings of LibriVox recordings and uh, sell them on eBay all the yep. time, and it but must be worth their while, or they wouldn't keep paying the placement yeah. fees. Yeah, they're, they're definitely they're definitely you know making something, but um, uh, and yeah, another. But I don't think there's a lot of money to go around. <laughs> it's I don't know they don't sell for very much. They you know they're selling for ten dollars at most, right? And after yeah. after you take into account all the uh, the costs involved postage and uh cds and all that stuff yeah well you know i mean i thought about the idea of going into doing audiobooks uh i've actually made available um cds of the best of mr ron's basement um which i even stopped putting links to the listings uh because nobody ever bought them yeah. i hand them out to people as promotion sometimes mm -hmm. um but uh you know the problem is is why buy a cd of something you can download for free uh, I uh, well, I I I agree completely. But on the other hand, people do do want CD versions, and um, that's why they show up on on eBay. Oh yeah. But well, I, I think if I, I think if you were saying, you know, uh, here's um, here's a collection of H.G. Wells rather than a Mr. Ron. Mr. Ron doesn't have the cachet of uh, of you know. You're right. I mean, I probably could package them like that. I've noticed, uh, you know, I have, of course, standing searches on eBay for a lot of my authors. Right. Uh, and uh, oddly enough, some of the most forgotten of authors, um, there are companies that do print-on-demand, and they sell new versions mm -hmm. of Max Adler's stories and Dostick stories and so on uh, of their books. And um, I see the listings all the time and they say new you know uh the, the letters of philander Dostics, and there it is and they want 20 or 30 bucks for it and it's a new printing so i'm assuming they do print on demand so they don't have to have a stock of books sitting there uh and yeah you may see more and more of this eventually um so we'll see but, uh, you know, talking about the ephemeralness of uh, newspapers, that's kind of what I'm doing is I'm using the power of the Internet to dig into uh, these old newspapers and so on mm -hmm. and pull them out and try to repopularize some of this stuff. It basically uh, would have been impossible for the Internet for you to, to have gathered as much as you, you've got. Yeah, um, even if I knew where, where these authors writings were, I would have had to have flown from city to city to look in uh, dusty volumes and so on. Um, when I did episode 1000, uh, the three-hour-long, three-part uh, Stanley Huntley story documentary, I actually did go down to the Library of Congress 
and I went through the entire uh, year's worth of uh, Bismarck Dakota um, Tribune that he edited. Uh, a wild newspaper, absolutely wild. Um, and it's not available on the Internet, unfortunately. And I had to go and lug my butt down to the Library of Congress to find it. Um, and they, they allowed you to do some scans, oh, I assume. Uh, well, not scans, but I could bring a camera and shoot it without a flash. Oh, yeah, that, that'll work. And it sort of worked. <laughs> but I couldn't do the whole thing, not a year's worth of newspapers, so I picked selected articles. Sure. But uh, it, it's a long, slow, and kind of aggravating way to get stuff like this. Uh, it's much nicer to go to, say, like the Brooklyn Daily Eagles uh, website, and pull up the whole run in PDF. Brooklyn Daily Eagles Eagle still, still in operation? They are in operation. There was a period where they were gone, but they're, they've been back for years now. Um, what this is is, is the uh, public library in Brooklyn had, I guess they took microfilm that they had of the old Eagle and translated it into web pages. It's, yeah, microfiche, hey. Yeah, and now it is searchable, but the search is not great. Uh, if you look up Spoopendike, you'll find out you'll find about half the Spoopendike stories that are in the Eagle. The only way to really search it is to sit there and click on issue after issue and flip through them on your computer. Mm. Um, which is why, uh, for instance, a couple weeks ago, after I thought all the Spoopendike stories by Stanley Huntley were gone, I found one. Uh, I've done about, I don't know, a little over 90 of them, and I think that's pretty much his entire output. Uh, what's interesting is some of them I found in New Zealand papers from the 1880s uh, on the Internet. And, you know, that saved me a trip to New Zealand where I wouldn't have even suspected that those things were. Right. Uh, so it is interesting that, uh, you know, and this is the days when to get, something in New Zealand, you had to stick a newspaper on a boat because they didn't have a uh, telegraphic cable across the Pacific back then. No, no, they wouldn't. Um, so it's kind of interesting, though, that apparently the Spoopendikes were very popular uh, in New Zealand, and newspaper down there ran their stories regularly as soon as they get their hands on them. And what's real interesting is uh, I actually did one episode where... I showed that they actually censored them a bit. Um, Mr. Spoopendike would frequently say, Dodd gassed it. Um, <laughs> and that was too much for them. They left those out. They thought that was a little too much for their readers. Um, that so, conservative lot down there. Yeah, very conservative. Um, but uh, it, it's just fascinating. Um, anyway, uh, but... This ephemeralness, I mean, if you carry it to today, right now, you say Art Buckwald, and people remember Art Buckwald, even though he died uh, a little while ago. Uh, but there's still plenty of people who used to read him all the time. A hundred years from now, you say Art Buckwald, and people say, huh? You know, and you say, oh, yeah, he was a popular writer um, of satire, of political things back in the, you know, 20th century mm -hmm. and uh, 
you know, unless somebody stumbles over one of his old books, they're liable not to know who he was. Uh, you know, it's probably a very esoteric thing to be even a hundred years from now for people to be looking at, say, 20th century Washington posts and digging up humor columns uh, yeah. via, you know, <clears throat> Mr. Somebody Else's Basement up in a hundred years from now doing that sort of thing. I think that's a perfect place to wrap this up. Yeah, I do too. I appreciate your taking time to chat with me. Oh, my pleasure, Mr. Ron. And I wish you lots of luck with SFF Audio. I think it's one of the coolest sites out there. Thank you very much. And, I, I think uh, we're doing sort of similar things. Uh, um, we've got our passions, and we're interested in them. And damn the torpedoes if nobody else cares. Sounds good. Okay, well, thank you very much. Oh, and let me, I don't know if you want to include this. I'd like to put a plug in for my server, uh, slapcast.com. Okay. They give you unlimited bandwidth for $5 a month. And a site like mine, uh, <laughs> we use sometimes um, hundreds of gigabytes a day of bandwidth. So I'm getting my money's worth. If you think you're going to do a po podcast that's going to be that popular, with thousands of downloads, it's a bargain. There's um, some dimension show, Doctor Who, the Zygon who fell to Earth, uh, new on BBC7, uh, airing on this weekend. Uh, it should be available on the iPlayer after. Um, the Time Lord and his trusty companion, Lucy Miller, return in another time travel uh, drama. In this episode, there's a family reunion between Lucy and her favorite Aunt Pat. But who exactly is Uncle Trevor, and what? Uh, and is he quite what he appears to be? Uh, starring Paul McGann, um, one of the earlier uh, doctors. Um, and um, uh, they've also got the, um, the rebroadcasting duel from uh, BBC Seven's uh, 2006 broadcast. That's the Richard Matheson story. Remember that one? Got turned into a movie? Oh, yeah. So, those are out there. They're, they're, they've also got C.S. Lewis's uh, Out of the Silent Planet um, starting uh, weekdays coming in the coming week. Um, I haven't read either uh, any of that uh, trilogy uh, science fiction thriller series by C.S. Lewis. Have you? Uh, no, I haven't. I, I've only read the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe series, mm -hmm. not the um, the Out of the Silent Planet series. Yeah, yeah the same for me. Okay. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. <laughs>